Amen. The text this morning is from Ephesians chapter 5, a well-known series of verses, but give your attention to them, for they are the Word of God. Verses 22 to the end of the chapter, Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. It's the word of the Lord. Let's ask his blessing upon it. Our God and King, your word is true, eternally true, and true in every generation and culture and situation. We are people who have so compromised the truth of your gospel that Jesus is Lord and that salvation from sin is necessary and available only through him, as well as the picture of Christ and the church and the beautiful gift of marriage and the roles of husband and wife. Let your word and by your spirit reform us and equip us for the ministry of your gospel and this gift of marriage. Bless husbands and wives and those who will one day be husbands and wives as we dive into your word and do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so I've preached on husbands and wives many times over the years, a couple of decades that we have been with you all. We've been together. And, and I've mentioned many times about how the power of the gospel is proclaimed in faithful marriages. We've talked about husbands and the roles that they are to lead and wives and the roles that they are to lead and how this reflects um, Christ and the church and the relationship, the covenantal bond with them. And how that produces a fruitful and faithful home and family. And that produces faithful societies. That's a bedrock. Those are the pieces, the, the building block molecules that put to place together build faithful communities and nations. But I don't think I've ever brought up the topic of husbands and wives where it was so explicit that our tyrannical government is outright upfront doing everything it can to destroy marriage to destroy what it means to be a husband or a father, a wife or a mother, to destroy what it means to be knit together in a covenant union established by God according to his law and his ways, and they're doing it on purpose. Our, our greatest strength in withstanding the growing government tyranny that is upon us is the nuclear family. And the founders of the socialist and Marxist movements said so. They say so explicitly. Destroy the family, rip the children out from underneath the authority of parents, tear apart what it means to be a husband and a wife, and especially the responsibility and authority that is given to a husband, and we will have the people. And that's what they're doing. 
That's what we're doing. And so as, as, I, as we take some time to, to go back and do this ministry of a family, a short series on what it means to be children and parents, what it means to be husbands and wives, don't drift off. Don't drift off. You know, I, I, I said to my wife this morning, as I was preparing this sermon on husbands, I was struck, I was pricked in my conscience in terms of what it means to be a head, what it means to have the headship of this family. And, and how many times have I gone over this? And yet, as I go through this, as I, as, and as you go through this, you should also be pricked in your conscience in terms of what it means to be a husband. What has God called you to in this? And where is it that you failed? Where is it that you're falling short? Where is it that you're compromising? Wives, women, children, do you understand what it, what, what it means for someone to be a husband? Do you know how to pray for that husband? Do you know how to hold and help that husband in his role? That's what we want to talk about. Because I think it is extremely important and there's a great opportunity for us as a community, as a people, as family, to teach the rest of the world around us, including the Christian community. What's a marriage? What's a husband? What's a wife? Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson famous, famously refused to answer the question at her nomination hearing, could you provide a definition for the word woman? Fearing ignorance and claiming she was not a biologist. Well, that gained Republicans all kinds of political fodder and mockery and laughter. But more importantly, it revealed how impotent the church is. With its millions, no, it's tens of millions of evangelicals in our land today, many of whom, if not most themselves, would be hard-pressed, if not embarrassed, to define what it is to be a man or a woman. We've been snuckered. And many would have no idea how to define husband or wife and talk about distinctions as though there were actual objective distinctions that God decides. When God grants a true awakening in our land, when he grants a true reformation and revival in our land, in our churches, one of the cultural areas, the, the way that we will know this, because one of the cultural areas that will be no, most notably affected will be the recovery of the biblical roles of husband and wife and the reestablishment of families, of Christian families, generations of Christian families. And so I've entitled this sermon, What is a Husband? What in the world is a husband? Look with me again on verse 31 32. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. What is a husband? Well, Paul says, quoting from Genesis, that a husband is a man. A husband is a man who, having left his mother and father, makes covenant vows of faithfulness to one woman. Or covenant vows. We're going to talk a little bit about what those covenant vows are. But a covenant... Just, just to remind you or to teach you, if you don't know, what is a covenant? A covenant is a solemn vow, sovereignly administered, with attendant blessings and curses. These are vows that are taken before God as he has given them, 
and before men in distinguishing you as taking particular promises and vows to a particular man or a particular woman according to, according to God's uh, plan and practice. So a husband is a man who is, having left his mother and father, makes these covenant vows of faithfulness to one woman to enter into a sexual union protected by those vows and made before God and society. Those vows are specified by the scriptures and not by our own whims. So Paul teaches this. And Paul teaches as he's describing what is a husband and what husbands are to do by turning back to Genesis chapter 2. Now, Genesis 1 and 2 is, is all about the creation of man and woman, the creation of man made in God's image, male and female, and the commands that God gave with regard to taking the earth, with regard to filling the earth with regard to being fruitful and multiplying, to fill and subdue the earth as God's vice regents for his glory. It's the context that Paul is talking about what husbands and wives are to do and to be comes from the the overall command that is given to humanity, which is called the, the cultural mandate, to take dominion, to take dominion of this world, to, to be fruitful and multiply, to subdue the earth, and to use it all for the glory of God. To take the things of the earth and be like God, to create. To take the things that God has given to us and manage them, steward them, multiply them, make them more fruitful to the glory of his name, just as God did in his creation, imitating him in that way. Now, the reason I want to bring up the context with regard to the definition of what a husband is is because I think it's important to, to understand that getting married is not simply an option for men and women. Getting married is not simply an option for men and women. It is an act of obedience to the Lord. Getting married is an act of obedience to the Lord. It is part and parcel to the creation of mankind, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. This is good to think about because when obedience is a joy, we often forget that it is obedience. So it's your, it's your wedding day and you're getting married. Have you ever thought, have you ever looked back on the day that you got married or if you have looking forward maybe to a day when you're going to get married? But look back on the day, those of you who are married, and look back on that day and remember the joy. Did you ever think about it being the obedience? Like, I'm obeying God. <laughs> And it's wonderful to obey God. I think it's wonderful to to take a moment and think about that because far too often, we only think about obedience when we're having to do the things that maybe are fighting our flesh against in order to do the things of the Spirit. Obedience can be full of joy. Obedience can be full of joy. And getting married is an act of obedience. Now, of course, getting married is not an automatic act of obedience. One could marry for sinful reasons or in a sinful way, nor is it automatically disobedience to not be married. There are faithful reasons to not marry at a particular moment in one's life. You're just 11 years old. You've been married. You had a period of time where you're married, and and now for any number of God's provinces, you are not. And that that might be exactly what the state God wants you in right now. So there can be all kinds of reasons that it's not disobedient to not be married. But generally speaking, culturally speaking, 
okay? Generally speaking, over the broad culture around us, which our culture needs to hear because our young people aren't getting married. Even in the church, they're not getting married. Okay, so generally speaking, men are to pursue a wife because it's not good for a man to be alone. And women are to be given in marriage because woman was made for man. 1 Corinthians 11. <laughs> so what is a husband? What is a husband? A husband is a man who enters into a covenant to become one flesh, we are told back in this passage. A, man, a husband is a man who enters into a covenant to become one flesh with one woman. Now, to become one flesh is certainly pointing to the sexual union that takes place in marriage. And we oftentimes don't even think about that these vows are to protect the, the unity and, um, and the privacy and the intimacy that is involved in being married because we do not think in our culture anymore about sexual union and marriage as like givens. They have to go together. There has to be covenant vows of faithfulness in order to enter into that sexual union. We oftentimes also, because we've discounted those things or because Christians, because of all the immorality, we, we, we think of sexual intimacy. We think of that word as kind of, why is he saying that in the pulpit? What am I going to tell my children? That, 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 that somehow should be divorced from the wonderful experience of making vows and commitment to one another as though vows and commitment to one another is what makes a marriage. No, what consummates a marriage is vows and the sexual union. Because the purpose of marriage, tied to the purpose of marriage, is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue, to make families as God provides, as God allows. So, but, but it's not all that involved, that's not all that's involved in becoming one flesh either. This is not limited to the sexual union of a husband or wife, but it does include that and even begins there. Consummation is vows and sexual union. Marriage is a mutual indwelling of the husband and wife, reflecting the mutual indwelling of Christ and the church. This is a great mystery, Paul writes, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. He wants you to look at the one flesh union with vows of faithfulness and deep intimacy, and he wants us to see, that's a picture for us to see, of a mutual indwelling of Christ and his bride, the church. We're to look at marriages and see a picture of Christ and the church. And, and not just that he's Christ and she's the church, but, but this, this one flesh union, this mutual indwelling, mutual partaking of one another, mutual giving and receiving of one another. That is what is going on with Christ and his bride, with Christ and you, with us. Marriage is a mutual indwelling of the husband and wife, reflecting the mutual indwelling of Christ and the church, which also is a reflection of the life of the persons of the Trinity. What was God doing before he created all things? Was he, was he just a, a solo hermit out there, void of any relationship? No, God eternally existed as three persons. Three persons mutually indwelling one another, loving, giving and receiving love, giving and receiving glory, mutually enjoying a perfect fellowship. And spilling over from that, God wanting to bring forth that glory, manifest that glory, created man, created all things for his glory, to be an overflow of that glory, to redound back to him his glory. We were created for the glory of God, but we were not created because he was lonely. 
We were created to be brought into the perfect fellowship, the perfect relationship, the perfect intimacy of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we were to reflect and, 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 and declare that, especially after the fall, in Christ and the church and their relationship. And we're to do so because as we are brought together in that kind of relationship, we partake of what we've been called to do, which is to, to take dominion of this world in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ over generations. A thousand of them, we're told. A thousand generations. We've got a lot of work to do. We've got a lot more generations to go. That's what we've been called to. That's what the church has been called to. That's what the people of God have been called to. So, with that in mind, let's take a look at what a husband is and is to do. Verse 23 again. Verse 23 says, For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he's the savior of the body. Now, this is in response to the, be the first sentence before that, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That actually in the Greek is a continuation of the previous, of, of the previous verse where the sentence really um, begins um, all the way back in, in verse uh, uh, 18, but just picking up in, in verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband, why, why? For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. We'll speak next week, next Lord's Day, Lord willing, about the role, purpose, definition of what is a wife. But here, uh, seeing that a husband takes on this role of headship in, the, in, the, in, this, in this relationship because God alone defines marriage. Because God alone defines marriage, every time there is a marriage, the husband becomes the head of his wife. Notice, wives are told to submit to, what, to, to their husbands. Um, husbands are not told to become the head. They are told they are the head. They are the head. They are the responsible head of that marriage because that's the way God set it up. He defined the roles. So it's not a suggestion or an option or a command. It's a statement of fact. And then also it says, it says, for husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. So Jesus didn't, it wasn't a suggestion to the, from the father to the son. You know, you really ought to think about being the head of the church. I was kind of looking around. You seem to be the best one. No, he is the head of the church, and he's the head of the church um, by, by, the, by the call of God the Father, by the definition of God, uh, of God himself, and we are to be the head, we are the head in the same kind of way. And also, and this is why we are speaking about Christ and about his gospel all day long, every day, every husband is. The question is never whether or not he is the, quid, is the head. The question is always whether or not he's being an obedient head or a disobedient head. And this verse also teaches us that we learn about headship in marriage by looking to the ultimate and final marriage, the headship of Christ to his bride. We learn a lot about what it means to be a husband by looking to Jesus Christ. And actually, I'll show you in next Lord's Day that wives learn an awful lot about what it means to be a wife by looking to Jesus Christ. <laughs> I'll show you that. So husbands, though, learn in a particular way and a different way what it means to be a husband by looking to Jesus Christ. And as they look to Jesus Christ, they see the headship of Christ to his bride, and they are to imitate that. Now, earlier on in Ephesians, um, Ephesians chapter 1, 
I always like to, I, I always think of Ephesians this way. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 are, are statements of fact. There's not a single command in the first three chapters of Ephesians. All it tells us over and over again in great detail is what God has done, what God has declared, what God has accomplished through his son and by his spirit. And then, and only then, Paul says, therefore, beginning in chapter 4, I want you to do certain things. I have commands for you. But the commands always are given after the statement of fact, after everything has been given to us in Christ Jesus, is given to us. Look again with me. We do this, I know, a lot, but it's so important. Chapter 3, before he goes into the therefore in chapter 4, he ends chapter 3, um, having told us all these things that we have in Christ Jesus, and he says, I know I'm about to tell you a whole bunch of do's and don'ts. I'm going to tell you about how you need to walk. I'm going to tell you how you need to put off that gross sin of yours. And I'm going to tell you you need to put on the ways of Christ. And it's, it's not going to be easy. But before we do that, I want to pray for you. And he says in verse 14 of chapter 3, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Everyone. And what does he pray? That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit, in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, in that love that I've just defined over the last three chapters, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Watch that phrase, with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Did you hear that prayer? Now let's talk about what you're to do. Well, earlier on in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul also said, with regard to what God gave to Jesus, this is chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, and he put all things under his feet. The Father put all things under the Son's feet. He gave him everything. He put all things under his feet and gave him to be head, to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So God gave, the Father gave everything to Christ, who is the head of the body, who's the fullness of all. You can't fill the head without filling the body. The head fills the body, and the body fills the head. That's what, that's what he said. There's a fullness that overflows. There's a fullness of headship that we need to understand. And, and um, part of the reason we need to understand this is because we think, it, and, we're, and you're taught, the world out there talks this way. Well, if he's going to be the head, if he's going to be the boss, then he gets all the stuff, and she gets nothing, unless he doles out a little bit to her. That's not what fullness is. That's not what headship is. That's not how it works, right? So this earlier passage in Ephesians speaks of Christ's headship over his body, and Paul picks up on this language in 5.23, where he says, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Well, we learned about how Christ is the head of the church back in Ephesians 1, okay? In that same way, so because we live in a world made by the triune God, fullness in one place does not mean emptiness in another place. In the love that the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father, the, overflow, the, the spilling out of all of that, the overflow of all that is the, person's the whole, person of the Holy Spirit who's then poured out, who's then given to, to all the church, to his body, to Christ's body. The, the fullness expands. It's, it's, not like, it's not like God has this much fullness 
right? And so if he gives a whole bunch to Christ, then he's down. And it's not like that with regard to the headship of the husband and his love, his, uh, the, the, the fullness that is given to him in the place of being the head in the relationship. It is a place where there's to be an overflow of that fullness that, that fills the body. So more here does not mean less there. In these verses, we see that the father gives the son all things, filling him. The son is filled by having been given all, and the son is the one who fills all. Biblical headship bestows fullness to its body, and the full body fills the head. That is the mutual indwelling of head and body, of the husband and wife, of Christ and his bride, and of the persons of the Holy Trinity. It's, it's hard to get your hands around. It's hard to get your head around, your mind around, but you've done it. In, when, we, when we do marriage ceremonies, we talk about this. Um, at least in the ceremonies that I do, in the giving of the rings, in the giving of the rings, the symbol of the vow that is being made, the covenantal vow, the words that I ask the husband to say to the wife and the wife to say to the husband are something along the lines of this. All that I have and all that I am, I give to you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And, and he gives it all. Is he empty? No, because she turns around and says, all that I have... And all that I am, which includes all that you just gave me, <laughs> I give to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then it should be, for the rest of their lives, it should be kind of like a Chip and Dale thing. Oh, no, me, after you. No, after you. Oh, no, after you. No. There's just a giving and a, and a receiving and a mutual indwelling. And, and all the, what happens is, you see this in Christ in the church. Christ pours out his love, the church grows. As the church grows, it, the fullness of that glory expresses more glory to Christ. Right? There's, Christ doesn't lose, and we don't lose. The head doesn't lose, the body doesn't lose. Be, why? Because they're one. Because they're one flesh. Because they're mutually indwelling one another. That's the way God set this up. Now, right after telling us that Christ is the head of the church, we're told in the same verse what this headship entails. And he is the savior of the body. He's the savior of the body. He's the head of the church, and he's the savior of the body. Now, this is really important because, again, talking about headship, Christ did not save the body by issuing decrees from his autonomous throne in heaven. I'm the boss, by the way, and so here's what you need to do because I'm the boss. That's not the way our God works. Now, now, now we are to obey him simply because he is God. But in, in, the, in, the, in his headship over his bride, what does he do? He gives. He sacrifices. He serves. Because he has a fullness that has been bestowed upon him by the Father. So he doesn't sit up in heaven as the, as the glorious boss. Instead, what he did was he took on human flesh, dwelt with men, and humbled himself for us even to the point of death on a cross. It's Philippians 2, 5 through 9. Okay? And so here's the first point of application for the husband who is the head. It's given in verse 25. If all this makes sense, then husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. The head loves the body because by definition, the head loves his own body. 
He goes on to describe this in 28, 29. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. No man ever hated his own flesh. Every man here knows the moment he's hungry. And he goes and does something about it. Every man here knows when he's cold and he does something. But he's, he is conscious of it. And when he does so, he loves his body. And that's, that's, that's the picture that a man is to have in this one flesh mutual union as he cares for his, his bride, as Christ cared for his bride. This, this loving of our wives is actually a pretty selfish love. Actually a pretty selfish love. It works really well with us men, because we're pretty selfish people. So Paul says, well, you know, let's just, I'm going to cut with a grain here. You're going to benefit more than you can ever realize as you sacrificially love your wife. I said I wanted to talk about the vows of faithfulness, the vows of headship. I'm going to take a look at them uh, through the passage here. In terms of, and, and, and I say this, vows of headship are important um, because in the same way that Christ loved the church, so husbands are to imitate that love for their wives. The, the kind of vows, the kind of love that is to be vowed is a call to be covenantally responsible for her, to be covenantally responsible for her and for her children before God, to be covenantally responsible as the head before whom? Before God, okay? I, I, think, it's, I think it's often dangerous um, it, in the tradition or the kind of uh, modern tradition of writing our own vows. Uh, I understand the, the sentiment and the desire for personally being able to say, but, but oftentimes those vows don't reflect the vows that God requires of us to take. We don't get to define what marriage is. We don't get to define what the vows are that God has given to us for us to enter into. The vows that we are to enter into is a vows of covenant for, for the husband, is a, is a covenant responsibility. In other words, it's the definition of masculinity. It's the definition of masculinity. It is the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility before God. It's to be like Christ, who we're told is the second Adam, who took covenant, as covenant head took full responsibility for all the sins of his church, of his bride, and stood before God and, and, and took full responsibility for them. In fact, he died on the cross for them. That, that's what it means to take sacrificial responsibility and to do so gladly. Jesus did it for the joy that was set before him. Jesus did it because it would make his bride pure. You want to make your family right, men? You want to make, you want to make your, your marriage right before God? Go stand before God as the covenant head like the Lord Jesus Christ, like the second Adam, like Job, the righteous man, who knew that it was, very, it was possible that his kids, when they're out there partying, might have done a little bit too much and sinned in some way. He goes before God, not even knowing, and offers sacrifices because he's the head, because he's responsible. Job's a good picture. Christ is perfect in showing us how the second Adam refuses to point the finger at the woman and say, it's the woman you gave me, and she's the one that gave me the fruit. This whole mess is her fault. And that's what we are tempted as men to do all the time. You look at your marriage and you want to tell God all the reasons why she's the problem. That's what happens in the flesh. Now, sh here, here's the deal. Men, I'm, just, I'm only going to talk to the men for just a minute. She might be the problem. 
In that one circumstance that you're talking about, she might be the problem. But you're responsible. How, how is it that she got to this place? What, what log did you not take out of your own eye so that you could then go and take the, the speck out of hers? Did you go and talk to God before, before God as, as this is the situation of my family before you went and talked to her? This is what it means to take full covenant responsibility. It's what it means to talk to God and talk to yourself long before you talk to your kids, long before you talk to your wife about what they need to do. What do you need to do? This is, this is what it means to take sacrificial responsibility for the sake of your family, for the sake of your wife, for your kids. As the Lord gives in his providence, as the Lord gives in this providence, these vows in the sexual union are to bring forth children. And so these vows, they, they ought to include this idea that and as God provides and brings forth children, we ought to have, from the time that we get married, we, from the time we get married or from today on, there ought to be a tribal mentality in a husband, a tribal mentality that, that immediately includes the generations that will follow because of the union. It is, um, it is only in, in the last century, century and a half, not even that long, really, because of, the, um, because of the ease of the kinds of birth control practices that can be had, because of the ease of being able to have an abortion if there is a fruit from the union, that in our minds, marriage is about a man and a woman Stop. Maybe one day we will want to talk about adding on children, but that's a, a decision to be made some other time. As opposed to understanding that, again, why did God create marriage? What's the purpose of marriage? Why does he hate divorce, Malachi? Why does he hate divorce? Because he desires godly offspring. And so this, this ties again to the, the joyful obedience of entering into this, this state of matrimony. It is, it is to be used by God to bring glory to God over generations of faithful child-rearing as God provides, as God leads and gives. If people are faithful to God, then God gives mercy to them to a thousand generations. It says in uh, Exodus 20, as God is talking about keeping his law, he says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. To thousands of generations, to those who love me and keep my commandments. That's what God promises. And so um, this, this love, this sacrificial love, I think can be defined in a number of different ways, and I have several of them, but this is not an exhaustive list. First of all, monogamous love. Like Christ, the husband is focused on one wife, one bride, and for the long haul. Let me read Proverbs 5. Written to husbands, drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be only your own and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. So, a uh, conservative group here. I don't know of anybody who's married to multiple wives, you know, and I know everybody here has a strong view of what 
marriage is, is about. So I know that lust and adultery are excluded, and you know that. But it needs to be said nonetheless, because it happens. Lust and adultery are excluded with regard to the love that you are to show to your wife. In addition, and here's where, here's where the, you can easily fall in a very pharisaical way. You're keeping that the outside of the law. But there's another sin. There's another sin that comes from uh, in, in the midst of monogamous love, and that is the sin of comparison. For this only reveals that his discontent mind is on other women. He's comparing. He's contrasting. Instead of what he's supposed to be doing, which is finding his attraction, his complete attraction, attention, and affection in the one that God has given him now. Finally, it is, the, it is certain the love of husband and wife should be above his love to all human relations. She's the first one that he gives his attention, affection to. She is his bride. She is his sister. She is his companion. No one else should come even close. His monogamous love must be emotional, relational, and sexual, focused upon her needs and desires. It's monogamous love. It's also promised to be an efficacious love, a transforming love. In this mutual indwelling and spilling over of one another to one another, 527 says that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy, holy and without blemish. In other words, Christ, when he loved the church, makes her more glorious, makes her more beautiful. It's an efficacious love. It works. And, and I want you to consider this an optimistic love. Because men, all men, all husbands, it doesn't matter the, the wife you have. You ought to have an optimistic love. Because you've been called to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Which means there's an avenue, there's a way to love your wife as Christ loved the church that makes her more lovely. That makes your mutual indwelling more glorious. So there's, we need to have this optimistic love which sees past all imperfections and creates a more lovely wife because of this love. Christ has this attitude and effect upon his bride, and imitating Christ means cultivate, cultivating this optimistic love and hope in your marriage. And, and men, what this means is you need to study Christ. You need to know Christ well, very well. You need to be growing to understand how Christ is head. How is Christ head of his church? What does this love that Christ have, has look like? Can you see that? Can you talk about it? Can you teach it from the scriptures? Can you take it to deeper levels in terms of understanding and then imitating what it means that Christ loves his church, his bride? This is why you must study Christ. This is why you must study his word, be in his word. Let his word fill you and transform you from the mind and the soul and the heart out. This is why you have to understand his plan. Why is it that Christ is sitting at the right hand of God, ruling all of the nations? What's the purpose? How am I to imitate that? Where is it all going? Because you're supposed to imitate it. The love is, is uh, monogamous. The love is efficacious. This love is selfish. Again, 28 and 29. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He loves his wife, loves himself. No one ever hates his own body, Paul says. Paul says, you cannot you love your wife like this without it returning in blessing on you. That's, that's the other way. It's a boomerang. Of, this is the boomerang effect of marriage. 
Husbands, you cannot, you can't outlove your wife. It's impossible. God, God says, try me on it. Try me on it. You cannot outlove your wife. You cannot, because when you, as soon as you love your wife, your body is blessed. Because she's your body, because you're one. You're one, you see that? You give everything that you have, and then she turns and gives back, and she has more to give because you gave her. This is the way that it pours back and forth. So if you have your head on straight, you will only try to love her more. But you will also learn that you can never outlove your wife, which will protect the marriage from scorekeeping on who has sacrificed more. Don't keep score, man. You lose. You just, you just don't want to realize it. You don't want to notice so love is selfish. It always comes back. It always blesses you because she is your body. And then it's a nourishing love. There's, there is something that you are to do that, um, that requires wisdom, that requires not only studying the word, but studying your wife and not just studying wives generally or women generally, your wife, this person with her particular personality, with her particular needs and quirks and gifts and abilities. With the, with the stage in life that she is in, with the place that you find yourself in, in this world and in this culture, you just study her and then you are responsible to do what it says here in verse 29. <coughs> you are to nourish and cherish your body. You're to cherish, nourish and cherish your wife. <clears throat> in, the way that you, in the way that you do naturally your own body, which means you're always attentive to her needs. Husbands are responsible, then the, the way this works out is you can think of it, nourishment, as spiritual food. And cherishing, the word in the Greek actually means to keep warm. So it's relational warmth. Spiritual food and relational warmth are your responsibility. And so this love leads. This love acts like a shepherd and leads to greener pastures. This, this one takes to fresh waters. This, this love takes a look at the needs, and then responsibly leads to better places. This love leads and provides direction, devotion to the Lord, family devotions, and church worship are his responsibility for his family. It spills over into the, to the, to the needs he must see, not just for her, but for her children. And he pours himself out with this, keeping warm, with this nourishment, with this spiritual food, with this relational warmth, as he provides that kind of headship to his family. <clears throat> well, for imitating Christ, it's also prayerful love because that's what Christ does for his bride. If, you imitate your Christ, if you're imitating Christ, then your love will be bathed in prayer. That's John chapter 17 is Christ praying for his church. We're told in Hebrews 7, 25 that he constantly intercedes for us before the Father. He's constantly interceding for his bride and the members of his body before the Father. Because you want those prayers heard, you want, to, you want to follow Christ, imitate him, but you must treat your wife in a particular way if you want your prayers to be heard. Peter warns men, Peter, Peter warns men that husbands must dwell with their wives with understanding, giving honor to the wife as the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, he says that your prayers may not be hindered. Which, of course, assumes you're praying. Maybe that's the first question to ask. Are you praying? 
Are you praying for your wife? What do I pray? What do I pray for my wife? I'd go back to Ephesians 3. I'd pray that prayer for your wife. She'd be strengthened with knowledge beyond the ability, overflowing with the fullness of Christ herself, that she would would know the love of God, the depth and the width and the... Just ask her if that would be a nice prayer for you to pray for her. That would be a nice prayer for God to answer. Pray for your wife. But pray for your wife as a man who's studying her and understands her as the weaker vessel. Then you're imitating Christ. It must be constant love as well. Verse 30 says, um, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Interesting, of his flesh and of his bones. I think hearkening back again to, the, uh, to Adam and Eve when he receives this woman, this Eve, he says, you're, you're bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, right? There, there is this immediate intimate union understood between the husband and wife, and we are the flesh and blood the, 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 the body of Christ is the flesh and blood of Christ, which means there's just constant love going. There's constant connection. Just as his head is always listening to and responding to the needs of his body, so he, as head, is always listening to and responding to the needs of his wife. This is constant, organic, ongoing love, like the love of Christ for his body. Now, I, I, I'm going to say, I'm going to talk about this in, next Sunday as well, while that's true for the man, his part of his constant love and attentiveness to his wife includes being a man who is out taking dominion of the world for his wife, who's out taking dominion in the world for the sake of his family. So constant devotion to his wife doesn't mean that he's always at kneeling before her saying, what can I do for you right now? Again, he has to be a man with great wisdom who understands that he is to protect and provide for his family, that he's to obey God in the cultural mandate by being the man and going out, taking dominion of the world. This is all tied together. So this is all the covenant, uh, the covenantal power of headship. Remember what is a covenant? Covenant is a solemn vow, sovereignly administered. God, God decides what the vows are, and he's the one, sovereign, you're, you're making those vows before him. They matter. They matter so much because they come with attendant blessings and curses. It's been said before, but getting married is like plugging, um, is like plugging that microphone into an amplifier, like this microphone. Getting married is the difference between me talking like this and me talking like this. Same voice, amplified. Same man, just amplified. Same obedience, just amazingly amplified with blessings. Same disobedience, amazing, destructive curses that flow. You enter into a marriage, you're plugging, you're plugging yourself into an amplifier. You, th- th- there is attendant blessings and curses, which is, which is horrible news if you're not in Christ. And in fabulous news if you are in Christ. Because us imperfect Failing all the time, every day, husbands can trust that in Christ, he uses our imperfect actions, our imperfect love, our stumblings, and he multiplies with great blessings because we do it all in the name of Christ. We do it all, we do it all asking his blessing upon it. So being in covenant with your wife, just as Christ is in covenant with us, means that everything the head does is amplified. The husband's obedience brings great blessings to all those in covenant with him. 
far more than he deserves, far, far more than he ever attained because of the covenant vows. Your particular incarnational prayerful love for your wife will be efficacious. On the other hand, disobedience will bring curses upon those under your headship. As, as Paul talks about the, the great efficacious work of the grace of Jesus Christ that covers the disobedience and the curse of the first Adam in Romans chapter 5, he doesn't deny the fact that the disobedience of Adam created a horrible mess. The disobedience of a covenant head brings the world that we see ourselves in. Destruction of society. Pain and misery, relational, relational pain and misery, because husbands and fathers did not take responsibility as covenant heads. And we see, you know marriages and families that you just see, they're under tremendous blessing. And it's all the grace of God. If you talk to that husband and you said to him, how did you do it? Well, if he's thinking rightly and he's walking as a covenant head, he's, gonna, he's going to say something like this. I have, I, I don't know. God has been so kind. I obeyed, but I, I didn't obey perfectly. I stumbled here and I stumbled there, but I did it in the name of Christ and his blessings have been unbelievable and they keep coming. And I'm optimistic for how much more will come because I believe in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ working not in just the souls of a man, a single man, but through that man to his family, to generations, to children, to grandchildren, thousands of generations. That's what he's doing. That's what a husband is. So once again, how you act speaks about Christ all day long. What do you believe about Jesus Christ? What do you believe about Jesus Christ? What has he promised you? Turning your marriage around is the same, takes the same actions as turning this world around. The path is the same for both. Families are the building block of society, and the nuclear family proclaims the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ in living color. We have generations in front of us to rebuild this spiritual war zone that we find ourselves in. The gospel needs to be thundered from the pulpits and lived out in Christian homes. Both need to take place. God needs to grant us both. And so, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, grant us repentance as a nation and here as individuals for twisting the meaning and purpose of marriage and its great blessings. Build up the men here who are husbands to see their calling and bless wives to receive their husbands in this calling. And draw us all to your son for forgiveness and hope. Grant hope to every marriage here today. In Jesus' name, amen.